Hey everyone, um, let me add my welcome to Denise's welcome to Recovery Jam. Um, again, we are not part of Overeaters Anonymous or any other 12-step group. This is really, this started as just like a small big book study with a few sponsees getting together. And, you know, but now if anyone wants to listen and participate, happy, you know, happy to have you. So welcome. Um, so last week we spent two days talking about step three, really talking about what it means to surrender. And so we're just going to kind of pick up from there on page 63. And I'm going to be reading a lot from the text tonight because there's so much good stuff in it. It says, we found it very desirable to take this spiritual step, this spiritual step, this consecrating of my life to God with an understanding person, such as a wife, best friend, or spiritual advisor. And it says the wording was optional so long as we express the idea, voicing it without reservation. Okay, what's the idea? The idea is that pre-third step, I had goals, right? And the goals might be good, right? Um, get my husband to stop smoking, get my kids to go to church, good goals. But they're my goals. Surrendering, right? The idea they're talking about now is I do the right thing and I leave the results up to God. And it says voicing it without reservation. I can only voice it without reservation if I trust that God's got my back. So all the work we've done in the second step now, see, we need that, right, to build on so that we can turn our life over to God. If, I mean, if I were to turn my will and my life over to a God I didn't trust, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. But through working these steps, we start trusting. So there we are, and we've surrendered. It's basically, God, I'm yours now. Do with me whatever you want, because whatever you do with me, has to be better than the way I was trying to run my own life and everyone else's on the planet. So it says next, meaning right after we do our third step, we launched, look at these words here, launched on a course of vigorous action. So it's telling us, okay, it's all very nice. We came to believe in God. We've, you know, have, we've turned our life over to God. Now we're going to get out pen and paper or computer and really get to work. So it says, we're gonna do a personal house cleaning. Though our decision was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. So it says, though our decision, meaning my decision to just give my life to God, and decide to just follow him forward the rest of my life, my whole future. They say that's vital and crucial, but it won't have permanent effect unless you go back and clean up the past. So a couple cool things here. They're telling me recovery can be permanent. I can start this program and if I do this work, my recovery can be permanent. There's an expression I've heard, like relapse is part of recovery. That expression is nowhere in the big book. In fact, they say it's infinitely better that we don't relapse. So it tells us recovery can be permanent, but what's required, a strenuous effort 
to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor, or for us, our food was but a symptom. So they're telling me I have to face the things which are blocking me from God. Now, sometimes people say, well, I need to put down the food because the food blocks me from God. But that's not how the big book explains it. The big book says that we are blocked from God because of our character defects. And because we're blocked from God's protection, it's inevitable that if we're compulsive eaters, we are going to eat compulsively. Okay, so we need to remove the spiritual blocks so that we don't get back into the food. And it's real clear. It says our liquor was but a symptom. So food doesn't block me from God. If I'm in the food, it's a symptom that I'm spiritually blocked from God. Okay, so again, we have to um, get rid of what's blocking us. If I have pneumonia and I'm coughing, my cough isn't the problem. If I just treat it with cough drops, I'm not going to get better. I may stop coughing for a couple of hours, but I'm not going to get better. I have to treat the pneumonia. And that's what this book tells me. I have to get down to causes and conditions. And the really beautiful thing about this is it says we have to face and be rid of them. So it's my job to face them, but I couldn't get rid of my character defects anymore than I could stop eating compulsively. Um, so God says, okay, Janet, you caused these defects, your fault. You know, we will all, we'll all agree on that. You need to admit them, but then I'll remove them because they're too big for you to remove. Okay. So that's what we get. We face them. And in the fifth step, we admit them to God, to ourselves and another person. And then we go forward. And in the sixth and seventh step, God removes them. We ask God to remove them. Okay, so it says, okay, now we're going to do a personal inventory. And they tell us why. Because um, any business that doesn't take an inventory is going to go broke, right? If you, keep, if you keep damaged and unsaleable goods. And that's really what our character defects are. They're things that keep us from being of use to God and others. Um, and it says, if the owner of the business is to be successful, he can't fool himself about values. Meaning basically, I can't think that I'm better than I am. You know, and most of us do, right? Where it's been said, we're egomaniacs with inferiority complexes. So it says, okay, the first thing we do is we searched out the flaws in our makeup which caused our failure. Self manifests in various ways is what is defeated us. So we consider its common manifestations. I mean, if any of you are interested, what I have my sponsees do is I have them do a defect inventory of all the manifestations of self. And I put together um, a list of basically the ones that I had, you know, and ones I think are fairly common. And put them together on a list. They're on our website, recoveryjam.com on the page, other resources, a defect list. And there's a column that lists the defect and then a column to look up the definition. So we really, so we can't sugarcoat it, what it is. We look up the opposite. So we know what to practice. 
and we give an example of the defect. Because remember, in the fifth step, we need to get everything out. So for instance, if it's, um, I don't know, stealing, you know, the definition may be taking something that doesn't belong to me, the opposite, paying for things that I want. And then an example, now, if I stole a piece of bubble gum when I was a kid, and I, or I robbed a bank, if I've done them both, I'm going to put the bank robbery down on my inventory. This is a chance to, you know, that old saying, we are as sick as we're secretive, to get those secret things out. Okay, so, and it tells us what the number one offender is, resentment. So if I plant the seeds of self in my soul, the main fruit that's going to sprout is resentment. And then it tells us what resentment is. It says it destroys people like us more than anything else. And from it stem all sorts of spiritual disease. So out of resentment, right? What comes out of resentment? Um, vengefulness, mean-spiritedness, jealousy. So resentment is like, you know, this, tree that has all sorts of different flowers on it and but they're not good flowers and it says from resentment stems all forms of spiritual disease for we weren't only mentally and physically ill we were spiritually sick and then it tells us the order in which recovery has to happen when the spiritual malady is overcome we straighten out mentally and physically. So that's the order of healing, spirit, and then mind and body. And it's not spirit like some ethereal thing that, you know, we can't understand. I mean, basic spiritual principles, be honest, do some self-sacrifice for the good of other people. Don't steal, um, you know, forgive people. So they say we have to resolve the spiritual malady. So it's like, okay, let's deal with resentments. And they say, we put them on paper and we ask ourselves why we're angry. So um, again, on our website, we have a resentment guide and then we have a resentment spreadsheet in Excel and it has five and a half columns. And I will explain the half. Um, the first three columns, we're going to write who we resent, why, and what it affects in us. So on page 65, it gives us a bunch of examples and it tells us what it affects. So I'll just kind of go through those things. Our self-esteem. So that means if someone says to me, you know, you're stupid, you're this, you're that, and it makes me think, and I'm angry because I think less of myself because someone else said it, that would affect my self-esteem. My security, that might be my financial security, but a big one with me through the years when um, my kids were younger, it was um, my emotional security. If I felt like my kids were mad at me, it would rock my world and I would feel like I didn't have a place in the world. It affected my security um, or ambitions. Again, could be career, but it could be anything that I want that I'm not getting. So for me, ambitions pretty much covers every, every resentment I have. 
I want something and this, a specific person, government body, the weather isn't providing it. Um, personal relationships. If you go to my best friend and tell her I'm an idiot and she doesn't want to hang out with me anymore, you've interfered with my personal relationships. Sex relations, if you flirt with my husband, um, that might interfere with my sex relations. So we fill out the three columns, you know, Mr. Brown, um, or these were Bill Wilson's. He resented Mr. Brown. Why? His attention to my wife. Well, that affected his sex relations, right? If, if he thinks Mr. Brown is going to be involved with his wife and his self-esteem, like, am I not good enough for my wife? And so it says, so we do that. We do our first three columns. And then we do, well, let's see. So it says, we go back through our life. The only thing important is thoroughness and honesty. And it says, yeah, sometimes people are wrong. But if we just stop there, which is what we usually do, we're not going to get anywhere. It says, people continue to wrong us and we stay sore. Sometimes it was remorse and we were sore at ourselves. So I'm just quickly going to address the question of, can I put myself on my resentment inventory? And the big book doesn't flat out address this. So this is my opinion. In my opinion, it doesn't really work to do it that way. It's very awkward. So let's say I resent myself because I was mean to a colleague. And then I go to the column, what does it affect myself? And it's, it's very awkward. So instead of putting myself on the resentment inventory, I can confess what I've done wrong. So if I'm angry at myself because I was mean to a colleague, I go to God and I confess, God, I was mean please forgive me for being mean. Please help me practice the opposite. And, and I make the amends I need to. Whenever I'm angry at myself, it's because I've done something I think is wrong. And the antidote for when we do something wrong is to admit it to God, to ourselves and another person, ask God to forgive us and make amends. I found that whenever people try and do put it um, in the fourth step grid. I'm angry at myself because it's very awkward and it, we don't get to the heart of it as well as if what we just say, I was mean. Even if it's, we were mean to ourselves, we can go to God, God, I didn't treat this body you gave me very well. Forgive me for being irresponsible or whatever it might be. So again, just my opinion um, on the way that I find works well. So, and then they just go on and they tell us why we can't have resentment. Why do they single out resentment as the main thing we have to be careful of? And it starts out by saying, okay, a life that includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. So it says, it's gonna make you unhappy. And they even have a formula to the precise extent that we live in resentment do we squander the hours that might've been worthwhile? So if I spend a thousand hours of my life in resentment, I've squandered a thousand hours. But they're saying, but that's for normal people. But even more for us, 
whose only hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave, as in it'll put us in the grave. So first, a question it says with the alcoholic whose hope, and I would say the only hope, is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience. How are we supposed to maintain and grow a spiritual experience? What is it, some kind of plant? Well, it kind of is. Um, you know, when Ebby went to visit Bill Wilson, Bill said about him, his roots grasped a new soil. So maybe what we're doing is we're kind of pulling up the weeds in our soul. You know, that this program is really about a soul transplant, right? Page 25 describes a spiritual experience. And it says, the great fact is just this and nothing less, meaning we're not supposed to settle for anything less. Um, this is the gift that God wants to give all of us. We've had deep and effective spiritual experiences, and this is what it does. It revolutionizes our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and towards God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us, which we could never do by ourselves. So I kind of picture like God in there kind of gardening, right? Getting rid, of the, getting rid of the weeds that don't work, putting in some seeds of some like better stuff, right? It's like, you know, getting up the weeds of selfishness, self-centeredness, putting in new seeds, kind of like a, changing the, the soil of our soul so that the illness like can't breed, can't grow there anymore. Um, but we have to help, right? I can't just like sit back and put up my feet and let God be the gardener. And I sit around and, you know, do nothing all day. Um, I'm supposed to maintain it and grow it. I need to keep weeding, getting rid of the bad and practicing the good. So there we are, right? We're maintaining and growing our spiritual experience. And it says, if we don't, if we continue to harbor resentments, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit, the insanity of alcohol or food returns and we eat compulsively again. And it says with us to drink or to eat compulsively is to die. See, this program isn't for the people who wanna like lose five pounds to make their high school boyfriend jealous, you know, at the, at the class reunion, right? This is for people like, if I go back into the food, like I'm six feet under, I'm dead spiritually, I'm dead emotionally, and eventually this thing will make me dead physically. Now we all get resentments, right? We're human, but it tells us we can't harbor them. Well, what's a harbor, right? I think about like ships and they go to a harbor to be safe. If a storm's coming, they don't wanna be out in the ocean, they go to a harbor, they wait out the storm. We can't harbor resentments. We can't be a safe place for resentments to hang out. It says, if we do that, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. So it's like, there's God wanting to protect us, wanting to love us. 
And if I harbor resentments, it's like I've put one of those like trap doors down between me and God. And he can't get through. Not that he doesn't want to. I've shut him out by resentment, by refusing to forgive. Um, but it's not easy, right? Like I couldn't just will myself to forgive most of the time say, okay, I'm just going to forgive. Mm -mm. So that's why we have two and a half more columns to go. We did our first three. So now it tells us bottom of page 66, we turn back to our list for it held the key to the future. Okay. We were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. We knew we had to escape, but how? We couldn't wish our resentments away any more than alcohol or food. So we can't just say, I'll, I'll just like forgive. I'll just, it says, we, we have a process. So it says, this was our course. So now they're telling us directions. First, we realized the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. I actually think that line is um, misused because sometimes people say, well, here's my part. I don't see Johnny or Susie as a spiritually sick person, meaning I'm up here on the spiritual hilltop, me and God, and Johnny and Susie who did these horrible things to me are down at the bottom. So I'll just pray for poor, sick Johnny and Susie. We don't want to do that, right? Well, that's, that's kind of prideful. So it says, um, they like ourselves were sick too. So I think a best, a good way to do that is to, um, my sponsor told me she takes out the word sick and puts in human. They're human, just like me. They have good, they have bad, just like me. Um, or they're spiritually developing just like me. And then it says, we ask God. So whenever it says, ask God, it means pray. We ask God to help us show them tolerance, pity, and patience. So let's think of those words, tolerance. Well, that's really about me. My ability to withstand pain or sorrow is raised. I have a greater tolerance. You know, if you take me, you um, take me to the doctor or the, or the dentist. Whenever I go to the dentist, they have to numb my gums just to like do a cleaning. I have no tolerance for pain. And yet my son, um, when he was younger, he had horrible ear infections and he would sit on the doctor's lap and the doctor would pull out all this gunk out of his ear with this little sharp thing. And my son wouldn't budge. He had a high tolerance for pain. So what this program is telling us is we need to get a higher tolerance for emotional pain. We need to stop being so sensitive. Like sensitivity is great for poets, not for addicts. So tolerance, pity. Um, I've heard that the word pity now doesn't mean what it meant then. And a better word is compassion. Sometimes people don't do nice things. Just, you know, I think of certain people and I think, what was their family life grow, like growing up? You know, what, what, what are they walking through right now to have compassion and patience? You know, if I look at like my kids and some of the choices they're making and it's like, oh my gosh, and it could make me angry unless I sat back and remembered the choices I made at that age. 
And I just need to have patience. I need to have patience. And it says the, that these things, tolerance, compassion, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend, um, or I sometimes say that I would want granted to me on my bad days. Um, when a person offended, we said, this is a fellow human being who's spiritually developing. How can I be helpful? See, we're not called to just forgive. We're called to be helpful. God, save me from being angry, right? I need to be rescued from my angry. Thy will be done. So if I'm not praying, I'm just doing self-help analysis, right? I'm writing things on a piece of paper. This prayer part is so important. So on the guide on our website, there's what I call column three and a half. And there's actually like a prayer that people can use. I tell my sponsees after they do the first three columns to spend an hour in prayer, not an hour per person, but at least an hour total you know, for God to soften our hearts, help us try to see things from their perspective. So only after we've done that and we've prayed, right? Because without prayer, it's self-help psychotherapy that doesn't work. And it tells us we don't retaliate. We don't argue because then we won't be able to be helpful. And it says, yeah, okay, we can't be helpful to everyone. It's like they knew our arguments. Really? You expect me to be helpful to that person? They say, but at the very least, God will show us how to take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. No loopholes. We got 100% there. God will show us. He has to because I can't do it on my own. Then we refer to our list again after we've prayed putting out of our minds the wrongs others have done, we looked for our own mistakes. And it says, where have we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? So I know often people go through and for every resentment say, where was I selfish? Where was I dishonest? Where was I self-seeking? Where was I frightened? Um, I had a wonderful woman, Barbara A. from New Jersey, who showed me a different way that for me was a lot more helpful. Because there's sometimes I'd look and I would say, yeah, I'm not dishonest. If someone punches me in the face and I have a resentment and I try and say, where was I self, where was I dishonest? I'm not dishonest. So I'm trying to like force things into a mold. Um, so what I like to do, what I was taught to do is to have one sentence. What is my part? What was my part? And that would be in my column four. And my column five is what defects caused me to do that? So let's go back and look at Bill Wilson's resentments and we'll look at some of his and see how we'd resolve them. Bill Wilson resented Mr. Brown, his attention to my wife. So let's say he prays and he says, okay, what's my part? And he, it would probably be, I wasn't home paying attention to my wife. That would be his column four. And his column five might be, again, it might be different things. That's why no one can tell you definitively what your defects are. So let's say I would say to Bill, um, if he said, yeah, I wasn't paying enough attention to my wife, I would have said, well, because you were work, um, spending too much time at the office. Greed, you just cared about making money. 
that might be true. It might not be. Or it might be he was drunk all the time. Different, you know, different character defect. Or it might be he's uh, got a girlfriend on the side and he wants her instead of his wife. Character defect, lust. So that's why I think we need to be careful if we call someone to go over an inventory, especially someone who doesn't know us. And they say, oh, here's your part and here's your defect. They might be right, but they might not be. Um, what Barbara used to do with me when I was stuck is she would just say, maybe it's this, this, that she would just lay out a few options. And generally at one point I go, that's it. And if none of them were right, she'd say, that's okay. We've eliminated all the wrong ones. So that'll help you get closer to finding the right one. Okay, so let's look more. I resent Mr. Brown told my wife of my mistress. Well, Bill's part there, he would probably write, I had a mistress. Defect, probably lust um, or whatever it is. Now let's look at some of the harder ones. Mrs. Jones, she snubbed me, okay? So now what's Bill's part there? Let's say he's been super nice to Mrs. Jones and she snubbed him anyway. She's, she doesn't like him. How about this? Bill could say his part is, I think what other people think of me is my business and it's not. Basically, what other people think of me is none of my business. And then what would his defect be? Let me try and think of the right word for it. Um, getting, my, getting my esteem from other people instead of from God. I don't know if there's a one word defect for that. If anyone could think of it, stick it in the chat. But um, getting my self-esteem from other people instead of from God. Or Mrs. Jones, she's a gossip. So let's say Bill doesn't, is angry that she's a gossip. What's his part? His part might be, I think other people should have my values. And then what's his defect? Playing God, right? Who am I to decide what other people's values should be? And this, I think, is a column four for so many things. This person... Um, Invited Uncle Harry to the wedding when Uncle Harry's a loser. You know, I think other people should have my values. This person raises their kids this way, speaks to their parents this way. I remember um, one time telling my sponsor, I didn't like how my father talked to my mother. He didn't yell at her. He would just, um, he could be in a room and there could be a muffin right in front of him. And my mom could be across the house. And he would say, Gloria, can you bring me this muffin? And she would come running from whatever she was doing and say, sure, Sam. And she would hand him the muffin. And he would say, I love you, Gloria. And she would say, I love you, Sam. And they were happy as could be for about 50 years until his death. But I didn't like it. Um, and my sponsor said to me once, your parents' relationship is none of your business. And that was so freeing to me. I didn't have to let. Now, if he was abusive to her, that might be different, but he wasn't. By the way, fun fact. Um, so I tried to be like my mom a little bit. And when I got married, um, short, we were married a short amount of time and my husband had a cold. And um, I said, 
can I get you a cup of tea? And he said, I have a cold. I'm not crippled. Um, different person. I definitely didn't marry someone like my dad because for my husband, he likes being independent. Um, and that works great for us because I'm not a bring you the muffin when it's two inches in front of you kind of person. But my mom was. So again, other people's relationships are not my business. Other people's values are not my business. That makes life so much easier. Um, so let's think of some other things. Sometimes my part. So let's say um, the room was too cold at night when we were sleeping and I got mad at my husband because the air conditioning was too cold. Um, perhaps my part there would be, I never told my husband I wanted the air conditioner set differently. Why? I mean, I might have different reasons. Again, that's why you can't tell me what my reason is. Maybe it's fear that my husband's going to beat me up. Not true. Anyone listening? Not true. The guy who won't let me get a cup of tea is not the kind of guy who's going to beat his wife, right? Um, but maybe it's because, um, I don't know, I feel guilty about something else. Like no one can tell me my defects. They can give me ideas but no one can tell us for sure what our defects are. Um, so let's see. He resented his wife because she, she nags. Well, what'd he do? He probably um, was coming home drunk and, you know, lying, you know, his part. I come home drunk and, you know, pass out on the couch. And what are his defects? You know, probably drunkenness, inconsiderate. So a lot of times we get angry, especially like in marriages because of something our spouse does. And our part is, I have not been willing to have the hard conversation, right? I have not been willing to have a hard conversation. The defect there is usually fear. And we'll talk more about that either next week or the week after when we go on to fear. But that's, if I'm angry at someone for something they're doing um, and I've never told them, now they still may not change, right? And then, then I can decide next steps, but often that's my part. I haven't said anything or I haven't set appropriate boundaries. This is like, you know, if someone says, my mother-in-law just walks in the house without knocking. Okay, well, did you set a boundary? Did you tell her, you know, mom, I love you, but I really need you to knock. Um, and if that doesn't work, lock the door, right? So sometimes, so a lot of times our parts are, we don't set boundaries. We don't have hard conversations. Um, and sometimes it's just my thinking. So here's one that I had. Um, my mom is old, older and, you know, I, for a while I resented that she just wanted me to like spend more time with her. Now I would, I was cheerful. She would never suspect that I didn't want to, um, but I, but I didn't. And so I remember saying to Barbara, what's my part? Like I do the right thing, but, but she, she said, if you have a resentment, you have a part. So she said, how about this? 
I think I shouldn't have to do things I don't want to do. It was like a dagger to my soul. And I'm like, yes, that's right. And that's self-centered. And um, when we get to fears and talking about playing the role God assigns us, I will tell you a miracle that happened with my mom and with my heart, a true, genuine, like burning bush miracle. But um, for now, let's just say that sometimes our part is, I think I'm entitled to so usually if, if it's um, we resent people because they don't do what they, you know, what we think they should, it's often we're entitled. I think I'm entitled to an easy life. I think I'm entitled, you know, I'm entitled to nothing. I'm entitled to nothing. And when I realize that, that everything is, is a gift, so much easier, you know, not entitled to health, to a long life. To, I'm just like not entitled to it. They're all gifts. So that, um, that helps us when we realize these things. So we go back, we look at our part, we list them in black and white, and we're willing to set them straight. And so what generally happens is after we've done our inventories, we've, um, it's like someone putting a pin in a balloon and the resentment just goes away when we see our part most of the time but not always and that is why i generally can't remember the name of this chapter whoever does go ahead and unmute um the chapter that has the resentment prayer in it i think is it freedom from bondage yeah it's page 552 <laughs> page 552 freedom from bondage so this was um if you have a resentment you want to be free of pray for the person or the thing you resent, you will be free. If you ask in prayer for everything you want for yourself to be given to them, you will be free. Ask for their health, their prosperity, their happiness, and you will be free. Even when you don't really want it for them and your prayers are only words and you don't mean it, go ahead and do it anyway. Do it every day for two weeks and you will find you've come to mean it and to want it for them. And you will realize that where you used to feel bitterness and resentment and hatred, you now feel compassionate, understanding, and love. Um, I've had like real experiences with this. I remember there were two people who they they did me wrong. They honestly did. When in fact, when I just look at my part, I had a lot of trouble finding it. And I was told my part was I didn't tell the people. I didn't like voice how I felt. And I did do that. And I still felt it. And it was like, well, you didn't, you know, I had to accept that they didn't, they didn't really care that much. They didn't care. And so it was painful. Um, and I was angry and I did that prayer. And I remember that I don't remember what, where I was in the cycle of two weeks, but I was praying the prayer, you know, praying like, okay, I wish for them everything they you know, I want for myself, like good marriage, good relationships with their kids, a good relationship with God. Like I can, and I, I mean, I was doing it through tears and a few hours later, the resentment was completely gone. I mean, it was dramatic. It was gone. I don't know if there's a magic number that it's 14 days. Um, and I would say if after 14 days, it doesn't go away, keep going, keep going because, um, it softens our heart. 
it's hard to do to, when we're really angry at someone to sit there and pray that they get everything I want. And I think, well, what do I want? Like a good marriage, good relationship with my kids, my kids to thrive and to pray that for these people who did rotten things to me. But I do it because I cannot be blocked from the sunlight of the spirit because then I'm in big time trouble. And that is all I have on resentments. Um, we'll have time if there's questions about resentments or anything else. Um, hold on, let me turn this off.